Good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. And there are folks with us, and there are folks who will not be with us after this week with us. Uh, uh, Some of you guys have had the up-close experience of walking with Chris and Sue Ellen Spencer in the last many years that God graciously directed them from Gainesville, Florida to come here and be a part of Lakeview. And, um, you know, some people just provide something that creates part of the atmosphere, part of the way in which we are. They just add to who we are as people. And they are moving. This is their last Sunday with us. They are moving to Washington State. They're going to be pursuing years with family in the future, which we are grateful for that opportunity for them, but we are hating the fact that it's not with us. You guys have been an incredible gift to us. I know many of us say that personally. We say that as a church, the ways in which you have infected us with a love for the Savior and an eagerness to serve, and our lives are just different as a result of you. So if you haven't had a chance to tell this couple Uh, Goodbye. This is their last Sunday with us, so please find a moment before this day is over. So thankful for you. Uh, And you can hug on the Schmaltz family who is in town visiting this week and going to be here with us for a little while. So great to see you guys. All right, one more public service announcement. Uh, If you could keep... uh, Myself, uh, the other regional leaders in Sovereign Grace churches that we're a part of, will be gathering this week. We've got a three-day meeting uh, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with all the regional leaders and the leadership team of Sovereign Grace. So I would appreciate your prayers for that time together. All right. If you have a Bible, it will flop open to 1 Corinthians, uh, and it should flop open to the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are, I'm not, I'm not promising we're actually finishing the book today. Uh, But we are going to venture in a little bit closer to the end of chapter 16. And and we're going to get afforded an opportunity to see something that when you study a whole book and you hang out with the people and you get to know their lives, you get to see behind the scenes a little bit about something. And we're going to see some of that behind the scenes in these comments today. But let me start by just asking us a question. How many of you would say, and you don't have to raise your hands for this, but how many of you would say you you're, have found yourself, maybe in this season right now, or in other moments of your life, in what you would call an unideal setting? Just not exactly making sense, not exactly reinforcing the expectations you had for that setting when you were going into it. Life doesn't exactly feel the way you thought it was going to feel in this moment. There are things that you can stare out into your life right now, and and they're just things you can't even explain, or there are things that you know that's not good, and that's not good. And there's no way I can think God would want that, or God would want that. And quite often, those can be settings that we live in. It can be family settings. It can be our marriages. It can be work environments. They can be the church that we're a part of. All right, so there are unideal things that we find ourselves set in. And what do we do with them? How do we see them? Well, the Apostle Paul has been helping us because how many of us remember the Corinthian church was not an ideal setting, was it? So let's, let's look here as he pulls out a couple of other things here. Uh, that highlight, this is not an ideal setting, and yet God is at work in these unideal settings. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers 
But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Well, we have hung out with the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians for quite some time now. And to, to put a label over this location called Corinth, I think it would be accurate for us to, say, to use the title of the message today. This place is a setting where holiness is mixed with humanity. And they're both present there. There is a heavenly holiness, but there is an earthly humanity. And you can lose sight of one or the other as you stare out into this real life setting. A real church, real people, real relationships are going on. Right? And so if you just ran through, I think you put a little checklist in your outline there. If you guys have an outline. If you did a little checklist on what have we experienced by staring at these people's lives? Well, we've experienced divisions and conflicts. Yep, lots of them highlighted, spoken of over and over and over again in Corinth. Fleshly natural-mindedness. Yep, I think we got a whole chapter devoted to Paul interacting with the fact that these guys were acting like mere human beings who didn't even have the spirits. But, but we know something different than that, right? Sexual immorality found multiple opportunities to be discussed in Corinth. It wasn't just one situation. It was like a church that had talk behind the scenes of sexual immorality that was going on here and it was going on here and that person over there there was divorce in the church there was marital mistreatment that was taking place there were lawsuits and self-interest so big that the church was losing sight of how a black eye was being given to the kingdom of god because you you weren't loving each other and solving your conflicts among each other and going to each other and working it out man just loving on one another Instead, you were entrenched and your own self-interest was dominant and you were going to court before the world. There was ethnic and economic disparities. People showed up for meetings and they gathered off in their groups. This was like small groups gone bad, right? So you have one ethnic group, you had, they'd all gather and they're a small group. You'd have one economic group that would come, they'd show up, they could get there early because they own their own businesses, could cut out early and get there and eat all the good food and drink all the wine. There were spiritual gifts there. What a good, wonderful thing. They're gifts from God. But this church figured out a way to make that confusing for others. To abuse those gifts. They were even questioning the resurrection. That Paul spoke of in chapter 15 before we get to chapter 16. So clearly earthly humanity is alive and well in Corinth. But what I find interesting is how does Paul respond to that? And, and this is not like oh, a little bit is out of place, right? Because some of us on ideal situations in our lives and, you know, we look at something else. We say, well, there's just a little bit out of place. There's a lot out of place in my situation, Keith. There's a lot out of place. Uh, there was a lot out of place here. A lot. Serious concerns are in this place. So much so that you would wonder, this is the Apostle Paul, he's in charge of the health of churches. That's what he does for a living. You would think at one point, and I actually can remember people having this discussion years and years ago. When you start having a robust discussion about holiness, about what God's passionate about, about what life should look like, about how people's lives should be affected by God and his presence, and when, when the Bible's taught accurately and the spirit is amongst God's people, you would wonder if this even is a church in Corinth. I can remember those conversations. But yet Paul doesn't seem to flinch on whether this is a church. And Paul is not slack and he's not slow about his investment in these people. Paul's going to visit this church. I think I didn't research this to make sure I'm saying this correctly. He's going to visit this church more times than I think he may visit any other church. He'll be three visits to Corinth. He founds the church in Corinth. So this church doesn't get started by some slacker who doesn't know how to lay the foundations for a church and doesn't know how to preach accurately the word of God. So look what you got. And this is the apostle Paul started this church. He'll visit them three times. He'll send them three letters, two of them we have in the New Testament, and he will send multiple people to them. Now he's sending Timothy, and he's trying to get Apollos to go as well. So Paul is not given up on this setting that's not ideal, and, and it lacks holiness, and it features 
human dysfunction. He's not quitting. And not only is there a clear presence of earthly humanity here, but there is a declaration of the holiness of God that is at work here. And Paul starts his letter highlighting that. So some of you guys uh, had less gray hair when we started the letter, 1 Corinthians. You were younger. You don't even remember back when we started it. But this is how Paul started the letter. Now that he's concluding it, remember, this is how he started it. He says, to the church of God. Remember that term, church? It's ecclesia. It's those who are called out of this world into another setting. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those who are sanctified. That's the word hagiazo. It's it's the word for holiness. In Christ Jesus, called to be saints, another expression of that same word of holiness. So you are sanctified and you are saints and you are the church. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. Verse 4 he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So in this place, with all the dysfunction that we can put on our checklist, the grace of God is here. That's what Paul saw. Verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Wait, Paul, you're talking about this? Did you, is that a paragraph for a different church? This church with that checklist, the testimony of Christ is confirmed among them? Listen, this is a lesson in how to stare into the humanity and the holiness of God. How many of you guys know sometimes when we stare at the dysfunction of whatever setting our life finds itself in, we can sometimes start to not see the work of God there. And all you see is what can be criticized. What's not working right? What's out of place? That's all you see. Paul doesn't just see that. He sees the testimony of Christ among them confirmed. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not lacking in any gift. How many churches could you stare at and say that's true of them? I know there's dysfunction in this church, but they're head and shoulders above almost everybody else in this category. They've got it going on. The Spirit of God is actually displaying his presence through gifts amongst this church. Verse 8. I know. Listen. Can he do that? Can the Holy Spirit really be in a place where there's so much bad checklist? Can he do this? Listen, it's strange how we create our checklist. I don't know if you've got a checklist. I've got my own checklist. I know there are things about me and how I walk with God and how I look to God, how I fail to look to God, how I fail to have faith, how my unbelief and my fears dominate moments of my life, how my advertisement to God is not, Keith, you deserve some spiritual gifts. And so if he's going to give them to me, it's going to be in spite of me many times. But, you know, aren't we tempted to stare at a church, a collection of people, to stare at your spouse, to stare into a group and say, you know what? I see a lot messed up about you. There's no way God could be at work there. Tempting, right? Verse 8. Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end? Wait, wait, even these guys? Yeah, even these guys. Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying this about these Corinthians. And he's advertising for them. You guys have a terrible track record and a bad resume. But God is faithful. I love that song. Ronald, thank you for choosing that song. You are here moving in this place. Are you kidding me? In Corinth? After that conversation about sexual immorality taking place in members of the church, you're here moving in this place. You're here working in our midst. Even when I don't see it, you're working. So the real challenge is to have eyes to see it, isn't it? I like this statement here. This is Paul going to write to these same group of Corinthians. 
Not too far after he writes this first letter in 2 Corinthians 5, he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All right. That gets said not because Paul is ignorant of the checklist. He writes the checklist. He knows what's going on with them. But he sees holiness in the midst of human dysfunction. You are new creations in Christ. Listen, we we have desperate need to see these things. If we miss them, if we miss them, or if we're theologically uninformed here, it will increase our vulnerability to disillusionment and despair. Because you will notice the human dysfunction. You will. You'll notice it in yourself and you'll notice it in others. You'll notice it in the church. So a little bit what I want to ask us today is kind of, what are you expecting? Are you expecting your relationships to escape this mixture? That you're going to find in the settings of the relationships that you're walking with others, husbands and wives, families, siblings, the church, friends, that there's not going to be a mixture of holiness alongside humanity in those moments. Are 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 you thinking that you're going to get one or the other? Because, you know, if that spouse of yours is serious about God, then you're going to see holiness, right? Yeah. And humanity as well. When you stare into the church and you see a people who are called by the name of God, who have a desire at some level to walk for the glory of God, you do recognize the holiness of God is at work because God is the one who's at work. But that won't dismiss the fact that some of what you stare out at will disappoint you. Right? Um, expectations. I can go back years and years. I can go back when I was a youth pastor and I had these conversations. So if this is, if you're a younger couple, you, you may be in this category. I'd have these conversations with people who were, their kids were three or four years out of the youth ministry. They weren't there yet. Right. But they were coming up and like all of us who are raising kids, we want our kids to flourish. We want them to be in settings that are just going to ramp them up for God, that are going to stir up godliness in their lives. And they're going to be these incredible walk-on-water individuals for the glory of God. And so you're seeing in a couple of years, they're going to be in the youth ministry, right? So I was a youth pastor. We had some great things going on. God was doing some great things in kids' lives. So some parents were like really excited about their kids being in the youth group. Can I just tell you the youth group has its own checklist? The youth group can look like Corinth in some ways. Are you surprised by that? Are you surprised that teenagers, with everything that's raging inside of them, with a growing level of understanding about anything and everything in life, who are picking the Bible up sometimes, who are being carried along by the wake and the movement of their parents and their family and a community that they're a part of. But now they're starting to think through a few things on their own and they're getting some different ideas and they're getting tempted in some ways and they're in the weeds sometimes. Are are you surprised that if you put your kids in the youth ministry, that they might bump into something that looks like Corinth? Are you surprised in this day and age that the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings are wrestling with their faith in a way that you didn't wrestle with your faith when you were that age? That they are under an assault this day in the information age that is eroding and confusing and turning upside down long-held ideas and convictions that you never questioned, but they're questioning all of it right now. In fact, if you are relating to some people who are struggling and questioning their faith and questioning the authority of Scripture and questioning why the church believes this and why, why is it practicing that, the Gospel Coalition recently released a book, uh, I think it was called Deconstru- Before You Deconstruct Your Faith or something like that. It's really a, really a helpful book to see what people are wrestling through. Are you expecting that the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings coming behind you, they're not going to have any questions in these categories? 
They're not going to seriously doubt some things that you and I have believed and accepted for years and years. We're almost surprised. We're almost surprised at the level of conflict that can happen within the church. When, when one ethnic group gets around another ethnic group. Are, are, if, if you're white here today, are you expecting that all the black people that are here see things the same way you were taught to see things? Are you expecting that? That what has made sense to you all your life as you stare out at the world that we live in, the way in which it's constructed, that, that you could have one conversation with them and they'll just see it just like you. And, and if you're black here, are you, are, you, are you expecting that in the church, your perspective could just be shared in a conversation and, and all the white people who grew up different than you are just going to shed that background and going to immediately conclude the same way that you conclude? That didn't happen in Corinth. And it's not going really well today in the church either. Right? These are real issues that are here among us. And the reason why is because in every setting, humanity, that broken version, that fallen aspect of us is traveling through these moments with the holiness of God. God is at work, but, but the brokenness of our own lives is there as well. And Paul casually mentions this and he features three settings here today. I just want to point them out to us before, you know, the whole Corinthian church. Yes, but he's going to highlight something about Timothy here. He's going to highlight something about the Corinthians, and he's going to highlight something about his relationship with Apollos here. And he just says them all matter-of-factly, but it informs us. How do you think about Timothy and the Timothys that are in your life? Well, let's take a look at Timothy first. Paul is sending Timothy. Young man, Paul loves this young man, puts him in opportunities to grow and to be used by God in settings. Paul is going to send him to Corinth. Paul is in Ephesus. He's going to send Timothy to Corinth, but he's going to prepare to send him by using these words to the Corinthians. Hey, put him at ease when he comes. Let no one despise him and help him. Paul, that's kind of obvious, right? Why you got to tell the Corinthians that? Well, there's reasons why you have to tell the Corinthians that. This is not a no-brainer moment for them. New International Version translates these verses. It says, if Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Strong language here in this setting. So Paul's revealing something about the Corinthians, but he's also revealing a concern about Timothy as well here. Timothy is he's the man of God. He's got God's anointing, man. He knows something about God. He's called by God. Let's give him a great resume in these categories. Paul's concerned that when that young man shows up in this setting in Corinth, he's going to get eaten for lunch. Paul's concerned for Timothy. Paul's concerned for the Corinthians because that's why he's sending yet another minister to them. So he's concerned for the people, but he's concerned for the one being sent as well. This is not a one-way street. This could be a toxic experience for Timothy to show up in Corinth and be treated in a way that he may have a hard time recovering from. Paul writes ahead and says, hey, make sure you don't do that to this guy when he gets there. That's real. That's Paul being aware. There's real humanity going on here. There's real humanity in the group, but that doesn't keep Paul from sending people to the group. But there's real humanity in those being sent as well. It's interesting. Last year, continuing really, has been a difficult year for leaders in the body of Christ. A couple of guys wrote a book last year called Pastors and Their Critics, A Guide to Coping with Criticism in the Ministry. The authors described the book saying this, while being criticized is a common pastoral experience, it is by and large an unaddressed problem. The majority of men being trained for gospel ministry are not being taught how to handle and respond to such verbal blows. And the consequences of this neglect are grave. A lack of training can quickly lead to disillusionment regarding the ministry and in far too many cases, even resignation. Being on the receiving end of criticism for any length of time can result in exasperation, insomnia, cynicism, burnout, and even despair. We have written this book to address this largely unaddressed problem. I don't think Paul wanted Timothy to show up in Corinth and experience exasperation, insomnia, cynicism, burnout, and despair. I think he had a concern 
for this man, and rightly so. Do you, do you remember much of Timothy's resume? You remember how the Bible is honest about who Timothy is? Amazing young man that Paul discovers passing through a town, sees God's hand upon his life and call. But when you get to interact with Timothy throughout his life and, and Paul's writings to him, you find out he's got some fear issues, some timidity about Timothy. He's got some health problems. You'll find Paul often admonishing him and pushing him forward and telling him, take the next step, Timothy. Keep going. Prepare yourself this way. It's like Timothy needed to be pushed into the game often. Right? It's a couple of guys described in their commentaries. Timothy Craig Blumberg says, Paul's concern over how Timothy will be received is certainly related to their conflict with Paul himself. And it's probably heightened by Timothy's youthfulness and possibly even by his personality. 2 Timothy 1.7 seems to suggest that Timothy was a naturally timid person. David Pryor goes a bit farther than that when he says, we read of an imminent visit from Ephesus to Corinth by Timothy. That would not have been without considerable cost for Timothy. He was a sensitive, nervous, and hesitant minister who constantly needed a boost to his morale. Clearly, Paul believed that Timothy had an important ministry to bring to the church at Corinth. He encourages them to put him at ease. Make his job easy. Invite this guy. He has some issues. Don't exasperate those issues. Don't make it even harder for this young man to come and minister to you. That's his concern. And he uses strong language here. Put him at ease is actually the word aphobos, right? Phobia, if you're familiar with that word, it means it's fears. Timothy wrestled with fear. Don't awaken the fears that are in this man and I'm sending to you. Well, why are you sending him? Send us somebody who doesn't have all these problems. Don't have one of those. <laughs> Everybody I got is a mixture of holiness and humanity. I'm sending you Timothy. Second Timothy chapter one, verse six. Paul speaking to Timothy says, for this reason, Paul says, I remind you, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, Timothy, but of power and love and self-control. There's a reason why this man has to be told these things. Because for him to do ministry, it doesn't look as natural as it might look when you get around him. He is wrestling through stuff on the inside. Therefore, he's told, do not be ashamed, Timothy, at the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us. He did it, Timothy. He called us to a holy calling. Why is this man needing Paul to be a cheerleader for him? Because he's a human being. And he's got his own set of weaknesses and issues that stand in the way. Oh, he's the man of God. He's Timothy. His name's in the Bible. My name's not in the Bible. Yeah, well, well, this is what comes with his name. He's got his own signature edition of challenges and weaknesses and issues that he's got to deal with to be who God has called him to be. Uh, pretty much all of us, though, right? I mentioned Charles Spurgeon a couple of weeks ago and his thought about humanity. He said, you know, the, the best of men, the best of them are yet still men at their best. That's who you get with Timothy, right? God sends someone named Timothy. He's got his own set of insecurities. He's got his own set of self-doubts. He's got his own set of struggles and comparisons. His own questions about his calling, questions about the effectiveness. Am I the right guy? Am I helping anybody? Was that message horrible? Do I even know what I'm doing? Right? These are not uncommon uh, conversations, by the way, between pastors. There is always a question of, you know, you step into something that has this God-sized dimension to it, and you're this squeaky little voice in the corner of a room that feels like, am I doing anything that matters? And then doubt, fears, depending on what you're prone to. And, and you know, everybody's prone to something here. Right, I know this is, the setting of this passage is the Corinthian church. 
And so it's obvious that we apply this to the church. But, but you know, there's other settings where the signature edition that's in Timothy shows up in the people that are in your setting with you, right? So there are husbands in this room who have Timothy issues that show up with them when they go to be your husband. They go to lead their family. And what comes with them is a need for somebody to be their cheerleader, to come alongside them, to cheer them on to be something, to help them wrestle through their timidity and their fear, to lead, to take a step, to walk in faith, to correct something, to, to affect their family in a certain way. Right? Holiness, that God has called you to do something, travels with humanity. Right? And this is true of wives that are in this room. That you've got your own signature edition of something that makes you uniquely who you are. And if Paul were writing to you, it might sound a little differently than if he wrote to Timothy, but, but he would be writing, encouraging you with the things that you bring into that setting. How are we doing with people that we're partnered with and we're sharing space with them and their lives with us are a partnership between holiness and humanity? And sometimes they look like a checklist from Corinth and sometimes I get to see peeking through the bright light of God at work in their lives. Well, that's Timothy. When he shows up in Corinth. And then we get a little bit of a back behind the scenes view of the Corinthians. Uh, Paul knew these Corinthians, right? He had spent time with them there over a year and a half, forming and founding the church. He's been interacting with them. He's gotten bad reports uh, that have been brought to him in person. He's got a letter written to him that he's been addressing. He knows these guys, right? He knows they are capable of some dreadful comparisons, dreadful comparisons. He knows that there is a whole debate taking place amongst the various groups within the church who identify with Paul. And then there's a group that identifies with Apollos. And then there's a group that identifies with Cephas. Right? And then later on in 2 Corinthians, we get introduced to the fact that this church was aware that there were not only apostles, there were these super apostles. And Paul, you just don't measure up. So if they had a problem with Timothy... Paul didn't escape that. This church found a way for, Tim, for Paul not to measure up. So he knew something about that, right? Ben Witherington said these people were enamored with the rhetoric of Apollos and wanted him back. They wanted Apollos. Paul was sending them Timothy. This might not go well, right? But the correction here, the tone of Paul speaking, he's speaking to the church. And he's talking to them about how you're going to receive the ministry that God sends to you. What's your posture going to be like, Corinthians? What kind of an atmosphere are you going to create so that when Timothy opens his mouth, what is it, it's going to be critique? It's going to be weighing what he said? No, Apollos would have done better than that. Or is it going to be receptivity? This is God's man coming to deposit something into their lives that they really, really need. I think I wrote this in your outline. Each member of a local church owns the biblical responsibility to create and maintain an atmosphere that is conducive for ministry to take place. That's what Paul's adjusting in this word to them. Conducive, right? You know, what that, that, that's that conductivity element. Right. You've got, you know, in the, in the walls of your house, there's this coated wire, copper coated wire that conducts electricity. It takes what gets in the wall right here and it transfers it all throughout your house. It conducts electricity, right? You and I are called to be conductors of ministry. When, when ministry comes to us, we transfer it. It's power, it's influence, it's truth. We transfer it to others. We're not these dull pieces made of wood that when it comes to us, it just stops right here. It gets critiqued. I notice everything that's wrong with it. I, I don't really choose that. I choose something else. Paul said, do not do that. When this guy comes to you, he's not Apollos. You receive what he's got for you and you transfer it to one another. And you let it do what it's supposed to do in your midst. That's what he's calling them to do. But he knows that that's not exactly the posture in the heart of these Corinthians. These Corinthians that he calls the church. The church has to be told, do not despise him, 
when he comes. Despise him, Paul? That's a lot worse than, hey, hey, can you find a way to agree with the dude? Can you help him out, encourage him? You know, maybe clap when he finishes the message, something. No, no, no. Paul has to tell these guys, don't despise him when he comes. Right? That's a strong word. Exothenio in the Greek. It means to, to make light of something. To set at naught. Despise. To treat with contempt and scorn. Right? It would be very easy for this young man, Timothy, to show up and he, he has a meeting or two and he shares some things and he's ministering to people and, and the buzz from the back of the room is uh, overlook, don't even repeat a thing he said, don't even notice, but have you read Apollos' latest book? Oh, isn't chapter two unbelievable. Oh, I heard his podcast the other day. I mean, I was blown away. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Do not do that to Timothy. When he comes, do not set aside the ministry God has given to him to give to you just because you like something else better than you like this guy. Paul knew something about being despised by the Corinthians. They use that exact same word to describe him. So Paul knows that, you know, this is the apostle Paul. He's got a little bit of a resume and he's sending a lesser into this setting. And he knows himself. Paul knows you guys exothenio me you despise my ministry for second corinthians 10 that word gets used again it says for they say this is what they this is how they evaluated paul's ministry his letters are weighty strong but his bodily presence is weak his speech of no account that word no account it's exothenio contemptible some of your translations say contemptible just set it aside when the guy is here, you know, I mean, his, his presence is weak, you know. What, what are they critiquing here? His theology? His doctrine? Paul's off base? Paul doesn't preach the gospel accurately? No! His style. His presence. His presentation. Whether he lines up with the preference of some of the people in the church. That's what's being criticized here. Can you imagine Paul sounded differently than Apollos did. Didn't raise his voice as much. I don't know. His presence is weak. Speech, contemptible. There's something about Paul going live with people that just didn't do the same. Paul wrote a better book, apparently, than he preached. But you're not to set that aside. They noticed it, right? Can you just, it's noticeable. You could actually see this if you got around Paul. But the encouragement was don't do that. Ben Witherington says Paul fears that Timothy will be treated with disrespect. That was his concern. I put in your outline this thought. This is a thought I think we just want to invite God's ministry into our lives differently. He says when we understand the presence of the Holy Spirit in and through others. This is what God has done around us. When we understand the biblical exalting of variety and plurality, not everybody's the same. Not everybody sits in my wheelhouse exactly the same way. When we understand that we don't always discern our own hearts and conditions well, I don't always know what I need to be told. So if Timothy shows up with a topic that wouldn't have been my topic of choice, that might be the topic I need that God has sent to me rather than the one that I'm going to dismiss it because it doesn't touch me in some way. Then we posture ourselves to receive whosoever God sends to us rather than becoming some type of critic or gatekeeper of ministry. And remember, this this is going to be true in the relational categories of our lives as well. It may not be a pastoral dimension that you're wrestling through in this category. It, It could be the way your husband does his ministry toward you. The way your wife does her ministry toward you. Not exactly like some book you read, huh? I swear it's always risky to recommend books to couples who are struggling. Because they're struggling with the humanity portion and then probably going to read a book that features the holiness version. Right? So here's the presentation of the guy who's being the godly guy. He does this, he does that, he doesn't do this and he does do that and then he shows up this way and he's incredible in this category. What an amazing resume holiness presents. And then you turn and you stop reading the book and you look at your husband. 
and his humanity is screaming at you, right? As this long Corinthian checklist of all the things you can think of. What do you do with that? And guys, this is true for your wives as well. Do you recognize in the Bible that humanity and holiness travel together and you encounter them both? And thank God for Paul who did the work to see the holiness of God amongst the church that had such a checklist of deficiencies and problems that were in it. And then we get this one last little item I don't want to miss because Paul brings it up. It's kind of strange that he brings it up the way he does. I don't know if he's defending something, but he, this unideal exchange that he had with Apollos about sending Apollos to minister there in Corinth. Verse 12 in the New International Version says it this way. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now. I know Paul's just trying to say, not my fault, not my fault. I tried, I urged him, I strongly urged him. This is the apostle Paul, I'm thinking he's pretty good at urging people. He strongly urged him. Apollos responded with, nah, not doing it. Not going right now. But he will go when he has an opportunity. What was that? A dressed up version of the Apollo, you know, Apollo saying, uh, I'll see if I can get around to it. I'm the apostle Paul. What do you think you're saying to me? And this is a, a reality of these two men who we, the Bible presents that they're effective ministers of the gospel in the body of Christ. But they get to a moment and we get a little behind the scenes element here where holiness and humanity travel with each other. And these guys don't exactly agree. Do you, do you expect that you're going to always agree with the people God's partnered you with? You, you think that pastors and elders, all, we just always agree on things. And if you don't, that's, that's not acceptable. Husbands and wives, do you all agree on everything? You want to take the next step exactly the same time in the same way you're prioritizing stuff? You want to spend your money exactly the same way, spend your time exactly the same way, do the same things? There are moments in which your humanity and your partner's humanity are not on the same page. Right here would be a quick list, realistic categories for thought. That some leaders, listen, some leaders don't agree on levels of urgency. You can love the kingdom of God. You can love Jesus. You can stare at a situation and one guy can say, that goes to the top of the list. That's incredibly urgent. And somebody else can say, "Mm, I don't think so. I think that's maybe like a second or third thing. I think we get to this first and then we get to that. All right, can you imagine you're the apostle Paul. You have this checklist. You're aware of the situation in Corinth. This church seems to be coming apart at the seams. It's got all kinds of problems. There's divisiveness there. There are people who are claiming to be loyal to Apollos and at the expense of being loyal to Paul and they're at odds with one another. But Apollos and I are on the same team. We believe the same stuff. Apollos, you need to go and talk to these people so that they can see we're together in this. This is what I wrote to them, right? One plants, the other one waters. We're together. We're trying to do the same thing, Apollos. Why don't you need to go to Corinth now? And, and straighten this out with these guys. They'll listen to you. A bunch of them like you. He had all kinds of reasons why right now is the time for you to go. And Apollos turns around and says, I don't think so. For reasons that we don't even get explained to us. He just didn't agree with the urgency. This isn't a disagreement about the atonement. This isn't like, okay, well, let's abandon local churches and build something different. This is a disagreement about urgency about how one human being sees a situation as more urgent than another. Leaders don't always agree on pace. How fast should things move? Which decision should be made now? Which one should wait? Should we reallocate and do this instead of doing that? Do you understand there's lots of room for leaders to stare and go, oh, I don't think so. Well, I do. And here's why. And if they're leaders, they can explain their whys. And then, the, and then Apollo's going to turn around and explain his whys and say, mm, no, here's why no. Well, here's why yes. Yeah, but no. Yeah, but yes. And can you imagine leaders actually disagree with one another? Sometimes strongly. Because I'm pretty sure Paul felt like this is urgent. 
You have got to go, Apollos. Now, this needs to be a priority. Do you see what's happening in the church here? Look at the letter that I received. Look at what we're hearing. Realistic. Can I, can I just realistic expectations for us as a church? Can I just tell you, your elders do not always agree on things. And things like urgency and pace, those are common areas where somebody's out further and then somebody else. And husbands, wives, you, you got to work through these things. You got to let humanity be in the room with the work of holiness that's in your midst. They don't agree on tone. Right? It's one thing to stand and say, hey, let's speak on this subject. Okay, what do you want, what do you want that to sound like? Well, Paul sounds this way and Apollo sounds this way, and it's noticeable, and the church notices that. So, what's the style supposed to sound like? Well, that message felt really, really heavy and corrective. Well, what was it supposed to sound like? Well, inspirational. Motivational, instructive. Okay. I guess. Maybe. I disagree. Right, maybe you don't ever think this stuff through, but this is this is the kind of stuff they were noticing the difference between Paul and Apollos. Paul sounded one way and he appealed to them in a certain way. Apollos sounded a different way and he appealed to them in a different way. And yet there was not agreement here. Humanity. Welcome to humanity. And this is not rare in the Bible, right? You, you visit Acts chapter 15, you have this big council that's called in Jerusalem because there's this controversy, right? The gospel's gone outside of Israel. It's gone into the Gentile world with all these messy situations in Corinth. And now there's these problems with people who have holding fast to the traditions of Moses and what they've learned their whole life and how they see the Old Testament. And then you've got these New Testament Gentiles coming into the church who don't value any of that. And there's this great disagreement. And they meet in Acts chapter 15. And it uses strong language there, right? There's a group. They're called the believers of the party of the Pharisees. How do you like those, that string of words? Can those words go together? They were believers of the party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are just bad dudes, right? They're always this negative group in Scripture. But they're believers here. And then there is... No small, go read Acts 15, no small dissension and debate about this topic. They call a meeting. And after long debates, they come up with this really simple ruling. I mean, if you stare at the situation, it is much more complicated than what they finished with. They come up with a simple ruling. All right, go back to the churches, tell them two things. One, abstain from things sacrificed to idols and things with blood and abstain from sexual immorality. That's it. Wait, what about this tradition of Moses? What about this thing that we hold so dear and how that's being practiced and that's being set aside? And when preaching is taking place, this doesn't even get mentioned, man. Just go back and tell them those two things. Can, can you imagine every leader thought, ah, that's, that's spot on, man. That's the way to, that's exactly what needs to be covered. We're all in agreement. I doubt it. I think there were some people feeling like that's not enough. That doesn't go far enough. You didn't cover the salient issues. Listen, in our modern moment, beware, with a thriving cancel culture, a disdain for differences. We don't just know their differences. We disdain our differences now. A polarization in our world with no middle ground. It is harder than ever to manage a diversity of gifts and personalities and styles and priorities of emphasis among leaders in the body of Christ. Don't be surprised. And don't be surprised when that same attitude creeps into husbands and wives who are trying to find common ground to live with in a polarized world that feels like you should hold your ground at all costs. Do not approach another person's position. You make them come to you. Well, that's out there. Ronald, you can come back up here. David Jackman describes Paul and Apollos' relationship when he says, Paul views himself and Apollos as planter and water in the same field. And here he affirms his brotherhood with him. But Apollos is his own man. And for whatever reason, it was not at all his will to accede to Paul's urgent request. Even though they disregard or disagreed with their travel plans, they are still united in the work of the Lord. 
How good it would be if today's disagreements among Christian leaders over non-essentials could deepen rather than threaten their gospel unity. And I don't just apply that for leaders in the body of Christ. In our families, in our husbands and wives, that we could treat non-essentials in the way in which we're supposed to treat non-essentials. And we could find unity in much bigger categories. All right, last thought here, and we're going to celebrate communion together. This is, this is help for the unideal, right? We live in an unideal setting. Holiness and humanity are going to be in the same conversation. So I think I wrote last in your outline, and there are settings where God is at work right alongside a variety of human dysfunction. Whether your Corinthian setting, whatever it is, is your local church or your marriage or your family, each of these settings are a mixture of heavenly holiness and earthly humanity. And Paul leans into that setting. Verse 13 says, okay, we're not quitting. We're not giving up here. Not walking away from this unideal setting. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong and let all that you do be done in love. This is not a man who's quitting or advising others to quit. But there's something about unideal settings, isn't there? That we gain our permission to quit by highlighting the checklist. But you can't quit if you highlight the holiness because you have to admit God is at work here. God's grace is in this setting. There's an abundance of God's work here. God is faithful to his work. He will finish what he has started. See, when you stare at that, you greet these settings differently, don't you? All right, so we're going to celebrate communion this morning. I think it was an appropriate thing, just given this message and what Paul was seeking to accomplish Here's what communion does for us, right? In just a moment, somebody could help me out with the bread and the cup, Pete, and send me one of those. These guys celebrated communion together in Corinth, right? We, we looked through that. We learned that. In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of ill feelings towards one another, mistreating each other, they celebrated communion, right? There was this moment, this powerful moment where these emblems, right, this bread and this cup, what, what it did was it, it provided an opportunity for the body of Christ to stare at something else besides the human dysfunction among them. To look away from the fact that, yes, people have disappointed us and have let us down and they've hurt us and they've surprised us. Check, 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 check. All right, can we... Can we acknowledge humanity as present, but now can we stare over here? Can we turn our attention to this bread and this cup that brings us into a community together? And it's God's intention. This is communion that needs to see Jesus accurately so that we can even be in communion with one another. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you know Jesus, if you've come to a relationship with Christ, and this is a meal that remembers him in a way that honors that relationship you have with him and with others. So if you have that relationship with Jesus this morning, then I'm going to invite you to, to make your way to the back. There's a few stations in the back where you can just come and, and get the bread and the cup. If you would just go get that and return to your seat. I'm not just going to release you. However you get up, you go, you go. And then come back and return to your seat and, and just wait for us. We're going to take communion together. But I want you to be thinking in both of those categories. I want you to be thinking, I'm not going to let the humanity elements around me keep me from seeing the holiness of God at work in the midst of my life. All right, so go ahead and get up. And you guys, when you return to your seats, we're going to celebrate communion together.
to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of To see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. taken lightly. It is an awareness of what Christ has done in the face of the reality of being in communion with people with a checklist. And so what, one of the things that it does, and for some this might change your game plan this morning, is it calls on you to be unable to separate those two things. 
You're not supposed to be able to stare at the cross and the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and then to stare at another human being and be incapable of walking with them in righteousness. You're not supposed to be able to do that. And so what communion calls on us to do, it calls on us to do a little bit of self-examination. To find out whether I have separated the reality that people have a checklist, don't they? Don't you? And we're walking with them. And something of the holiness and the greatness and the faithfulness of God's got to be present. Because we're going to offend each other tomorrow and next week. But there's something greater here. It's not just our humanity in the room with us. The holiness of God is with us. So you hold bread in your hand. That bread is an emblem. It's a representation that the Son of God came and took on flesh. He took on a body. He made himself a physical human being. You know how the Bible applies that? It applies it this way. Philippians chapter 2. Paul said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, right, with each other. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, Paul, where, where'd you get that idea? Well, have this mind in you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and he became obedient to the point of death he put on a human body so that it could be crushed under our sins Paul how did you apply that to the way in which we relate to each other that you walk in humility and you have the same mind towards one another listen you cannot have a checklist without a long list of holiness right next to it. It's not how God operates. So can we just pray for a moment before we take this bread? Lord, I am as tempted as anyone in the room to let somebody else's checklist drown out the holy work that you are doing in that person and in that setting. And God, I hold in my hand a reminder, a reminder. You put on human flesh. You're God, eternal, infinite. You wrapped yourself in a body so that nails could find a place to go. And you could be crushed for my iniquities. But Lord, you were crushed for their iniquities as well. You were crushed for their checklist. So Lord, I cannot, I cannot eat this bread and celebrate what it did without applying it to the checklist of others. Take of the bread. This cup is the blood that accomplishes forgiveness and reconciliation. It brings us back to God. It wipes out the accusations and the failures and the real sins that we have committed. And it brings us back to God. Checklists tend to be things that drive us away from one another. But our checklist, isn't this crazy? Our checklist before God had blood spilled all over it and God comes to us. He doesn't run away from us. He comes to us. And Paul doesn't run away from these Corinthians. He comes to them. They don't like him. They're difficult. He moves toward them. He sends them people. He goes 
See, this is what the blood of reconciliation does for us. It gives us the grace to relate to those who aren't easy for us to relate to. And to the degree that I'm avoiding people with a bad checklist, to the degree that I can't bring myself to get around the bad checklist, I need to call in the question, do you know what you're holding in your hand? Do you know what this did for you? And would you let it do it toward others as well? Father, thank you for forgiveness, for meetings with you that don't sound like a rehearsing of our checklist. But rather a celebration of your grace toward us. And you have called us with a holy calling because that's what you're like. And you don't ever stop pursuing us and caring for us, transforming us, being patient with us. And you put us in a community, Lord. Would you make that to be the tone of what it feels like to be in this setting, to be in a place where we've been reconciled to God, therefore we pursue reconciliation with one another. I thank you for this cup. Let's drink. Lord, thank you this morning for letting us hang out with the Corinthians, letting us visit with the Apostle Paul, letting us see holiness in the context of humanity. Lord, it sounds like our lives too. Swallow us up in your grace, Lord. Help us to see your faithfulness. Let us see your abundance in our midst. Let us see that we are sanctified saints called to be the church by the grace of God. God, may your holiness to us be so much louder than our checklists and our humanity. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Bless you guys at home. We miss you. We hope to see you soon. Thanks so much for giving us a listen today or giving us a watch. We'll love to see you soon. Come visit as soon as you can. We'll see you then.